real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Nathan Romas. And today we are continuing with our episodes in the series on service as we come up to Remembrance Day. And just for a bit of background, these are a number of podcasts with current police or law enforcement partners who've served in the military. The focus is on what service means and why it's important. But we're also going to talk about their experiences in things like training and deployments, uh, their memories, uh, the people that they have dealt with, and some of the impacts of service. So today, we have Andrew Jarvis in studio, and he's a current member with the Edmonton Police Service. Uh, and Andrew was born in Whitehaven, England. Everywhere over there has such a cool name. <laughs> but he moved to Canada at age seven. He's lived in several provinces before he moved back to the UK at 26 years old. He joined the Royal Marines at 27 years. And while in the British military, he served with several units, including 42 Commando, 30 Commando, and served in places uh, kind of stretching from Ireland to Iraq. And he left the Marines in 2004, then completed some private security work in the Middle East before eventually ending up back here in Edmonton with the police. So, uh, and fair warning, you might think uh, the next voice on here is going to be the voice of God because this guy's got the, one of the deepest voices. So should be doing movie trailers. But welcome, Andrew. Well, thanks very much. So um, maybe we'll start a little bit at the beginning, get some of your background, but tell us uh, you know, about growing up and eventually we'll get to what drove you into military service. Okay. Uh, growing up, like I grew up in first in the UK and Northern England, uh, it was there, like I, like it says in the bio, um, till I was seven, moved kind of against my will. My parents moved mm -hmm. and I didn't have any choice to move with them. Um, then I grew up in various bits of Canada, um, ended up going back to Scotland to visit, I think in 1982, because we moved here in 80, a couple of years later, and it's when the Falklands was on, and that's kind of what first got me interested in as a young kid in uh, the British services and the Royal Marines commandos in particular. In particular, um, that went on a back burner, and I ended up going through high school in a place called Fort St John, VC. Um, got a trade, was an oil field mechanic for a couple of years, and um, yeah, then I just got sick of that and <laughs> went on a three-week holiday to Scotland and uh, joined the joined the Marines over there. Um, scared the shit out of my mother. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the things I want to get into is, um, so you you moved to Canada at age seven. So I'm guessing the accent, that must be developed at an early age because you were here for the next essentially 20 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, my accent's a really mixed bag and I was pretty, my brother had a Canadian accent about three seconds after getting off the plane and I held <laughs> on to mine for dear life because I thought for sure I was going back. Oh, yeah. And eventually I did. And then went into the British forces where, especially the Royal Marines particularly, because they're drawn from all over the UK, mm. not just one part, you start to speak to be understood. So mm. everybody starts to sound alike a little bit. <laughs> uh. 
So you're here. What kind of what kind of makes you think like that's what I want to get into? Because you said you went on a vacation, um, but imagine is there anything that kind of precipitated that? Like made you think, hey, I want to get into military. It was not exactly spur of the moment. Um, I quit my job in the oil field uh, under fairly in a poor a poor light. I was pissed off, so I mm. you know I needed a bit of a holiday. I took one. While I was over there, I walked past a couple of recruiting offices and thought, you know, I'm getting a bit. You know, I was 27 at the time. I thought I'm getting a little bit old. If I don't do this now, I'm not going to get to do it. So I walked into one of them and, and ended up taking the physical test and then the uh, written test and all that stuff and yeah, ended up making it in. So was that always something that was kind of on the back, uh, in the back of your mind? Like, I want to serve in this capacity or? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was. Um, and my age was a factor as well because when I got into the recruiting office, the only, I was lucky I went into a naval recruiting office because the army at that point uh, in time wouldn't take anybody past the age of 26. I was already past that. Oh, really? And the Marines would only take you to 27. So <laughs> I was like right there. <sighs> so if I'd waited any longer, I would have been out of luck. So what do you think? Why, why'd you wait until that period? Uh, cause I grew up in Canada and it didn't seem realistic really. And, you know, and I, I was kind of money obsessed a little bit when I was younger mm. and grew up in an oil field town. So I did what everybody else did and, Went into the oil field, but when well, you can make you can make six figures and be you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty working in the oil field, it's and then maybe I want to say you get stuck there. Like you're you're like, uh, how do I go to anything else? And I'm not going to make this kind of money. So I mean, it's it's crazy thinking about it. I was making more then than I do now, and that was in the late nineties. You know, it's it's actually crazy the money that really? people were making up there. Yeah, so. You're over here in Canada, and did you have any interaction with anyone from the military or any, I don't know, we'll say like, uh, did you see them anywhere? Is anything that kind of made you think like, well, I'd even consider the Canadian military? The reason I actually went the British route was A, because at some point in the back of my head, I wanted to move back to the UK to at least see what it was like as an adult. Um, the other part of that was... Um, Canada hadn't deployed anywhere at that point near the end of the 90s in a really long time mm. um, with a couple of exceptions obviously but you know like for the most part the Marines have been overseas every year since the formation of the commandos in 1941 they've been overseas in some capacity one of the commando units has been overseas uh, every year except I think it was 1965 they called it the year the Corps rested that's <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there was lots of action. You were, if you wanted an overseas tour, you could get one. Would you be able to provide any kind of insight as to why why are the Brits so involved in a lot of things or, or continuously? Whereas Canada, you know, we just kind of seem to be on an island here in North America, and we are much more picky and choosy whether we get into something. Um, I think the Brits have always been quite belligerent on the world scale. Like, you know, like invading countries has been a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of it too is that they had, at the time when I was in it, they, I think they had the second highest uh, military budget after the States. Like they were they were spending more than Russia was. Really? <laughs> or maybe that was per capita anyway. I remember yeah. they're, they're up there anyway. And they, uh, 
yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And you just hear a lot more about the military in the UK than you do here. It's kind of a, it's in yeah. the papers all the time. It's, you know, there's always some deployment going on. So it's, it's in the public consciousness a lot more than it is in Canada. Yeah. Do you find um, maybe, I don't know when the last time you were over there was, but do you find there's a big difference between, we'll say, the younger generation in the two countries and whether they think about service or not? Like, is that a, a thing that's kind of more in the minds of younger Brits? Yeah and no. I think Britain, like Canada, is, is going away from service being as seen as cool as it was years ago. I think there seems to be, in both countries, there seems to be a kind of a push to get away from it and to not be seen as warlike. And it's not a popular opinion among the young. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I said, the UK is exactly like Canada in that regard. Yeah, I wonder, you know, what what's really changed and i imagine it would be a lot of factors but what's kind of led people away from that lifestyle or or seeing themselves as being in that so. i think there's there's media is a lot of it and everything is reported now so i mean mm -hmm. what might have been you know glorified or just left to the imagination before is now you know you, you hear about stuff the moment it happens and, yeah and from the slant of a journalist so i mean it depends what young people get is what they're fed. Yeah. So it, it really depends on what your media is feeding you as to whether you, you know, how you form an opinion on a lot of things. Well, I guess, you know, we guys come back from the world wars, Vietnam or Korea, and the media is not, not what it is today. A lot of things like you're saying are left to imagination, but maybe, you know, you hear the glory stories more, uh, and then the ones where, you know, people are, it's, it's all about blood and guts. Uh, you can't really envision that in your head you, until you see it. Well, there's nothing to bring back, but, you know, just what people are saying. So maybe they're not really telling, they weren't telling those stories in the day as much. And it's more about the glory, right? So people are celebrating more than they are talking about things like PTSD or shell shock or whatever else there might be. So, yeah. Um, so when you go back over to Britain, you said you were just happened to be walking by like a recruiting place and that, that kind of made you just walk in? Yeah. I mean, I'd been thinking about it for like the first week of being there, like, you know, and then I was just kind of working up the courage to go and see one. And then I did. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, I went to a different town that had a naval recruiting office and went, off, went for a walk up the high street. And as I got to it, I made the decision to walk into it. And then, you know, the rest is history, history as they say. What, but, uh... Did you have any family that served or any uh, history of it? That's a strange one. My grandmother was in the Women's Royal Air Force. She was a wafu um, uh, she, as a cook. It's uh, called a, wa a wafu? Wafu, Women's Royal Air Force. Okay. Uh, and yeah, they have wrens as well, which was women's, uh, women's Royal Navy, Naval Service. It used to differentiate back in the day. It's gone. Okay. That stuff no longer exists. But, but yeah, she served in the Second World War. Um, and then... My mum's brother was a short-term uh, Royal Navy sailor. Like he did a couple of years and then got out, which was at the time an option. You could do a short-term engagement mm. just to see what it was like, basically. Oh, really? Yeah. But, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think of like doing military or even policing as like a 
hey, come do a trial run. Yeah. <laughs> like, the hopefully Navy's, you don't get killed. <laughs> the Navy, at least over there, is a little bit interesting. You go into the Navy as, an, as you know, as a non-officer, like another rank, they call it. Um, and you, it's generally trades-based. Everything on a ship, you know, you, you have to have a trade to be on a ship. You okay. have to be a stoker. You have to be a signaler or any number of other things. Uh, these short engagement guys were just basically the dog's bodies that didn't gain a skill while they were in there. They just went in, got to bang around the ship, clean the decks, and uh, travel, and <laughs> get kicked out after two years. <laughs> well, so you, when you go in and you, you kind of sign up, uh, did you end up telling your family about this or did you tell them beforehand? I told my mother after the fact, yeah. <laughs> quite formally. She was in Canada, I was in the UK. Uh, I told my, my Scottish extended family, you know, immediately after the fact as well. But What's kind of the reaction? Uh, a little bit of shock. A little <laughs> bit of not shock, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They know you. I've been trying to kill myself for years. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't mean in the suicide manner. I mean just by misadventure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of that, like, what was your personality kind of growing up? Are you more of an outdoors person? You know, something that might people might see as tending to lead to military service or that those type of employment. Um, I was pretty shy as a kid. Um, I did like the outdoors and I kind of went through high school in Fort St. John, BC, which has a really beautiful backcountry close mm. to it. Um, so I did spend a lot of time outdoors up there. Um, I wouldn't say I was highly skilled in anything, like I wasn't a hunter or anything like that, but yeah, I went banging around and hiking in the backcountry a little bit. So what um, when you get there and you, you go through the recruiting station, can you kind of walk us through what does that look like, and and what year would this be in then? That would have been in uh, the very beginning of two thousand. Okay, but so quite a long time ago. Yeah. So why two K hadn't happened? I think uh, it the just world had didn't actually. crash. Yeah, but the world didn't yeah, crash. That's, yeah, we, we were all just lucky to be alive at that point. Apparently. Yeah. So you're in there. Um, what does recruiting kind of look like? Well, at first you go in and there, then they, you know, they kind of, they tried to steer everybody into the Navy uh, stream because they're predominantly a Navy recruiting office. The Marines just is a subset of the Navy, basically, in the UK. The, uh, and you're told, you know, when I expressed interest in the Marines, you know, they, they kind of tell you, well, you know, it's, it's a lot harder. You should, you know, you should think about just doing the Navy and, you know, you, it's, uh, and, and some of the people I was in the, the, uh, classroom writing this it was like a multiple choice test and short answer thing and um, some of them didn't look like they were really suitable to be out of their mom's basement and <laughs> some of them were like incredibly incredibly young looking like to the point where i would have thought their mother should have been with them but mm. um all things being relative i was pretty old at the time um, for just starting and something like that yeah. um i did get told at the end of it that i'd scored the highest of anybody there on the test. Um, so that was, you know, good and kind of encouraging for them because they, they, they kind of, you know, maybe you are, you know, maybe you are a candidate for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they pushed my application forward and I got a date to go and do the potential Royal Marines course. It's, um, it's a three-day session and I don't want to, well, I mean, the closest comparison I could give is something like the tactical runoff. You go there for three days, they uh, kick the shit out of you for three days and, you know, and, you know, 
And because you're living on board a, a naval base or a Marines base, you they they can do things like not let you sleep for the two <laughs> nights in between. So you you get screwed around a lot. And, so and it's it, basically just to see how you're going to cope with the eight months of training. Yeah, yeah. It's just to weed out the weeks so they're not wasting their time on, you know, and we probably lost 50% of the people through the potential Royal Marines course, the PRMC. Well, you were saying, so this is considered like a not the most basic infantry soldier type of thing. It's like a step above. It's a step above, yeah. They'd be called, I guess you'd be called elite infantry. Okay. Is this still, is it special forces type stuff that you'd be getting into? It's not really. Um, It's, it's, the commandos are strange because the, the training is arguably harder Mm -hmm. than a lot of other countries' SF training. Um, And the U.S., rangers the army rangers their training is based off british commando training so very similar sort of tests and whatnot okay. that the rangers would have to do yet they would be considered a special force and we're not so when if you get into the royal marines you're a commando yeah that's kind of what the position is or they used they used to differentiate used to have non-commando marines um and you know uh, when they were first formed in World War II, they were split in half as well. There was the Royal Marines Light Infantry, uh, who eventually all became commando trained. Um, yeah. And then there was the RMA, RM, Royal Marines Artillery, RMA, okay. uh, who were the guys that ran the guns on a ship, yeah. essentially. Um, but they gave that up, and then they over over the course of time, they got rid of the non-commando mar- trained Marines. And at the time, one of them, Commandos were formed in 41. There was army commandos and there was marines commandos, but by the end of the war, the, the army dropped it all together. Okay. They, they had the SAS, so they they dropped the commando rule altogether, except in support of marines. We had, uh, uh, God's truth, it's been a while, sorry. Uh, they had two artillery, royal artillery regiments that were commando-trained army. Mm-hmm attached to us and one uh, engineer regiment that was commando trained army attached to us. And then anybody that worked with us regularly out of the Navy could become a Navy commando. Oh, okay. But they had to do something called the all arms commando course, which is to say they finished their regular training as a Navy person or an army person. And then they would take a 10 week short version of the commando courses culminating in the four commando tests to see that if, see that they were physically able to, serve beside us yeah well do you think uh, when you first went through all these tests and we're getting in what was your mindset kind of like like are you thinking i'm ready if they want to make me eat bugs and sleep in the bush for you know weeks on end and stuff like is that something where your headspace was at i gotta tell you i was every week that i stayed there i was quietly surprised <laughs> yeah because you're you're expecting to get binned all the time like mm-hmm. they kicked guys off that course for sneezing wrong like it was it was fairly bad and the physical training was very hard on me i'm pretty large for uh, a royal marine they tend to be in the small skinny and fast side of things and i'm definitely none of those things so um so i struggled a little bit with the running at the beginning and and uh, you know and you get start to get you start to accumulate injury over mm-hmm. weeks and weeks of running with packs on your backs and big boots and yeah. All of that sort of thing. And yeah, and it it starts you your body starts to protest a little bit. 
So you go in, you do all these tests, you say scored uh, at the top. Of the of the initial, of the yeah, initial multiple class. guess <laughs> yeah. test. Yeah, that was just so, to get in the door. But so yeah. they got this test and you did really well on it, but then they're like, well, you're at the top of the age range. Did they, what do they do with you after that? So, well, literally then it's just that you do that, then they do a medical just to make sure you're not going to, you know, keel over dead with a heart, with a heart attack on the 30-miler, which has actually happened. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they, they want to make sure you're not going to, you are, like, medically capable of doing it as well. Uh, yeah, then you do, like, the three-day potential Royal Marines course, which, you know, they do things like beep test and stuff like that, and then they do, you know, how many pull-ups can you do and how long can you stay in a plank, and you know, and then just a lot of beasting and a lot of running and, yeah. And then just some punishment for punishment sake. Oh, I find it interesting. You can come, you're basically a guy just off the street. You walk in and they're like, okay, we're just going to brutalize you for three days. Yeah. Oh, it's a while actually between when you go in, it's, it's probably a six month process between going into the recruiting office, doing the test mm-hmm. and you, you know, getting a medical. And I had to get like a national insurance number. So I had to get like the ability to work in the UK. Mm-hmm. And stuff like this. So you get all get to go get to get all that admin stuff. And that probably took, I don't know, four to six months to get sorted before we did the PRMC. And then it's once you've passed the PRMC, if you pass it, then you have to wait for there to be a spot on a recruit uh, in a recruit troop. Oh, okay. So what's the so you do that whole process and then now you're coming up to you get told your hey, here's your date, you're gonna go to the training. Like your actual training, your basic training, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So when does that kind of happen? And then what does that look like? Well, it's eight months long. So it's 30, 32 weeks, I want to say mm-hmm. it is. Um, and it starts off <laughs> not really light, but it's you start off just running and doing kind of, you know, circuits and stuff like this for physical fitness. And you start you know, progressively learn more about weapon systems and and, you know, how to survive in the bush and, you know, and how to administer yourself is a, one of the biggest, hardest things to learn is, is how to keep your kit clean and dry, uh, especially in bits of the UK where it pisses rain constantly. <laughs> Makes for good soldiers because there's no worse environment than being wet and just slightly above zero. Mm-hmm. At least when at least when stuff freezes, your your clothing isn't wet, and you don't have to do something called what we used to call wet and dry routine, which is you operate in the piss wet clothing all the time. <sighs> and then when you get your half an hour of sleep at night, you have to change completely into dry kit to get into your sleeping bag, so your sleeping bag doesn't get soaked and ruined, so mm-hmm. it doesn't lose its insulative value. And then when you get up for a century in 15 minutes from when you get your head down, you uh, have to put all your wet kit back on and then sit there freezing your bollocks off for an hour <sighs> before waking up the next poor bastard to do his hour and, you know, and, and so on and so forth. It makes for fairly tough soldiers because you are never, you, operating that temperature range mm-hmm. sucks. I've done time in Norway in the Arctic and I found that infinitely easier than Really? Than the just slightly above zero wet yeah, type of thing. Yeah, it just seems to chill you more to the core. Yeah, and it, like I said, it's just, you know, in the Arctic, at least you can dress for it and you mm-hmm. can dress up for it and your under your underlayer isn't piss wet and whatnot. But well, once and, you're wet, you're wet. So where, where do they send you for training? Uh, it was mostly done locally to where we were, which is in Plymouth, Devon in southern England. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, yeah. 
I tell lies. That's where I was stationed. Um, it's um, Exeter. Um, it's called uh, Commando Training Center Royal Marine CTCRM. It's in a near a little village called uh, Limpston. But uh, and it's just a big, big thing. There's any, there's like fifteen at any given time. There's they put a new troop through every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So there's up to fifteen recruit troops with up to up to 60 people in them going through that place at the same time plus all the training teams plus everything else so it's busy it's, it's people always doing something there oh yeah massive yeah well I, I always wondered too about England like it's such a small little landmass. so I always wondered like where do you go to do training there because you think of like the bases here and they're out in the middle of nowhere and like nobody could see you for miles but there I feel like you're you're not ever really far from a big city or at least a city and um, might even like, I don't know, where do they do like the uh, Air Force training out there? And it's, it's all kind of very interesting the way they do things in the UK, especially if you've lived in another country before going there to train. One of our main ranges was actually, they fired out, the, the, the backdrop was the sea. So we actually had to put people in boats to make sure that pleasure craft didn't come within the Oh, really? The, the end of the range, yeah. Um, and then on the moors, there's a lot of kind of big open, they call it moorland, mm-hmm. um, close to these trains. That's where they situate them there as well. They try to situate them kind of like they do here, as close to the what little wilderness Britain has. Um, yeah, so. And we trained a lot in Wales and Scotland as well because we were a mountain and Arctic warfare specialist unit. So we did a lot of hanging off hills. Um, so yeah, we did Wales, Scotland, and Norway a little bit as well. So uh, when you're in those units, and I'm not an expert by any means on the politics over there, but do you? Because you're saying you train with Wales and Scotland, but is Ireland a part of that, or they maintain their own thing? Well, the United Kingdom is um, England, Ire- England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the British forces are comprised of all four of those. Um, so we did have. We did serve beside Northern Irish guys. Okay, uh, that tended to be the uh, at the time anyway. Politically, the Protestant Northern Irish yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we had a lot of colonials. We had a lot of Canadians. We had a lot of South Africans, uh, New Zealanders, Australians. Like that were that were serving in the Royal Marines in the Royal Marines. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. It, do you know why? Is it just uh, it was it had a good reputation. No. Hazard has a good reputation as being a tough unit, so it did get a lot of interest from other countries. Okay. Um yeah, and again, Britain loves to stick its nose in things, so people people that wanted action wanted to go into it. I've heard of um is it the French Foreign Legion? Like a lot of people go to join that because I guess they'll just take anybody from anywhere. And I might be kind of generalizing that, but that's kind of the idea of them. Um, so a lot of people go over there and try to get in, you know, is that it, kind of true of them? I have a friend who was ex-Foreign Legion. He was British Army and then he went over and joined the Foreign Legion. Um, what he didn't do in the interim was get out of the Army. So he ended up basically going AWOL and joining the uh, oh. joining the Legion. And then he got arrested the next time he came back to the UK. Oh, <laughs> so once, but once he got that sorted out, he went back into the Legion and did a career with them. And then I ended up working him with him when I went private in Iraq. He was my partner in Baghdad for 
six months. So, yeah. okay. I have a little experience with guys from the Legion. So, well, we'll go, we'll, maybe we'll get into that because we're going to talk about your private uh, private service there with the security. But uh, what does training look like for someone in the Royal Marines? So what's your day-to-day? Um, you take everything from like map reading classes in a classroom to, you know, learning how to use nuclear, chemical, and biological warfare suits to, you know, to weapons training on all sorts of things from belt-fed weapons to... Um, you know the regular British assault rifle, which was which is not highly uh, <laughs> highly thought of by uh, a lot of other people. They did redesign it while we were in there, and it made it slightly better. Um, but yeah, a bit a bit of pistol training, not a ton. Um, you know, a bit of hand to hand training, not a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of physical exercise. You probably are. It's probably five, six days a week. You're going for some sort of a run or some sort of a, you know, long running is a big thing in the Royal Marines. The the last commando test is a 30 mile run with 60 pounds of kit plus a rifle. And so, it's, uh, you, you can't, that's not something you can just, you know, you have to work up to that. You can't just strap on a pack and go for a 30 mile run unless you want your body to give out or unless you're a much tougher man than I am. Well, so you get in and you said you're not, you know, the lean running type body but what to, what weight did you get in there at do you know yeah it was probably about the same i am now like six six one and 225 kind of thing did you lean out quite a bit yeah yeah, yeah i you was got just, down to i was like probably 205 210 by the end of that okay i don't get much smaller than that like i, I look that actually looks strangely skinny on me but yeah yeah but yeah um but yeah, that's, you do lose weight and like the little skinnies end up gaining quite a bit of weight, the ones that made it. It's, mm. uh, we had a lot of attrition in my course. It was particularly, I mean, attrition's high anyway, but mine was really bad to the point where we weren't able to pass out as a troop. We had to wait for the next troop behind us to pass out and we oh, passed really? it. We just got attached to them. So we had to wait two weeks to do, for our pass out to occur. And just um, so we, listeners kind of know, like a pass out is uh, like the official graduating. graduation. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, the uh, it's not what you do after a run, which that's also <laughs> passing out. But uh, the yeah, I think we started with sixty four and ended up with nine at the end of it. So the attrition, oh. the the attrition was pretty solid. Man, how did you find the instructors? Um, not friendly. No. <laughs> no. Uh, the. Uh, is it just drill all the time? They're just yelling the whole time? Yeah, to a point, yeah. It's, I mean, it's not like the U.S. Marines where everything's hoorah and like screaming and whatnot, but it's, they're on your ass all the time and they want high standards of everything, of cleanliness, of, you know, of everything at all times. You are beasted, which is their term for um, corrective punishment. Yeah. If you, uh, if you mess up. So, yeah, and we got beasted all the time, whether for, you know, for, for sins real or imagined. (laughs) Did you guys, uh, do you have anything like, um, well, first of all, where did, would you stay in? Was it just like a barracks? Yeah, they were, they were, I don't know, they were probably 60s era concrete and brick. Yeah, barrack rooms, four guys, no, six guys to a room, sorry, and, and not terrible like it's i've i've stayed in much worse accommodation mm. um since then yeah uh, and like if you go to some of the satellite army barracks where you're sleeping you know 60 guys to a room or when i was in northern ireland you're basically in a 
hole underground. Yeah. And there's 18 cots in a room that you wouldn't think you'd be able to fit one in, but it's, uh, and it's horrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, so you're at the training there and you know, you sleep in these rooms. It's got all these other guys. Uh, are they doing uh, inspections on you? Is that a thing worldwide? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you got all your stuff and kind of tossed oh, and they yeah. ruin the room? Oh, yeah. They, they had the, <laughs> Dolby is the, the term they gave to washing. And they used to, one of their, thing, one of their things was to, if they found somebody's shit not folded properly in their locker, they'd haul out the entire troop's stuff, throw it over a landing, pour tide on it. And then pour water and all of that. So everybody's kit was ruined. So mm -hmm. then you, your evenings for the next two or three were spent rewashing all of your clean stuff, refolding it, putting it back. And Well, I remember, uh, and my closest example would be going to depot. So going through with the Mounties. And, uh, you know, you had to have all your, your uh, shoes lined up a certain way. They had to be tied up. They had to be laced up. Um and I remember we got our, uh, was it our, I don't think it was our high browns yet. It was just the, um, I call them the parade boots. That might be the correct term, but it's just like the shiny black ones with the spur on it. And um, they're just for parades or like show, right? They're, you don't wear them for work, um, but you had to polish them. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was right after we got those and we had a, an inspection that we didn't know about. So we're out all day. They come in the corporals and they check your whole room and they're checking all the snaps on the jackets. There's inside your jacket, there's other zippers and snap. Everything's got to be done up at all times. So anyways, they didn't like a whole bunch of stuff in our trailer. So when we came back from the day, uh, we found all these boots that like everybody had polished and they were like perfect, like mirror finish, uh, just whipped all the way down the hallway into a big pile gouges taken right out of the leather <laughs> so you have to come back and figure out okay now i gotta spend you know at least one of my two weekend days repolishing everything and yeah they did quite a few things i was telling the last guy who was in here um uh how they took our some of the mattresses and threw them in the showers so <laughs> so yeah they come up with some creative ways to mess with you oh it's uh, they had us once on the parade square they did the same thing to us but they made it they they they, they uh, screwed up all our boots at the same time by simply making us do push-ups in them oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so there goes the toes yep all right so you're um you're in this training uh how long is that it's eight months eight months okay that was the eight months i and did break my leg in week three so mine was a little bit longer i ended up going i didn't end up passing I got what's called back trooped. Now you can mm -hmm. get back trooped, back trooped for professional reasons. On the other hand, you suck at something, so but they want to keep you, so they just you get some remedial training for a couple of weeks, and then you start with the next troop after you. And they'll do that like one or two times, and then they'll skid you. Yeah, um, because they're not. I mean, they're just not. They've wasted a bunch of money on you at this point already, but they don't really care. They had very exacting standards, and if you didn't meet them, they wanted rid of you. It didn't matter how much desire you had or whatever else if you sucked at something they eventually chucked you out okay um or if you got injured and injuries were really common to the point where we had a remedial wing like a remedial fitness wing for guys with like me that i had a broken leg and you know guys we had all sorts of horrific injuries injuries um and most of them you'd go into it was called hunter company and you'd go into hunter company and 
heal up and then you'd once a day you'd be in the gym uh, in front of you know physical training instructors who specialized in um, rehab basically okay so i got to spend i think it was six weeks getting rehab for a broken leg and in a cast and yeah doing hand bikes and you know rope climbs with no legs and all that good stuff and until you you know trying to keep at least some strength and fitness in you for when you get back into it well six weeks is quite a quite a bit of time to add on to oh, yeah. already doing Oof. eight months yeah yeah it's it's adding it's adding yeah a long time to what's all, already a hellish long time since you're with the royal marines like is there any uh water component oh <laughs> yeah you don't just get wet from the rain like yeah you, you we're in and out of the ocean pretty much all the time really what what kind of training are you doing out there we did everything from like helicopter dunker drills where they stick you in a a fake helicopter um, chassis and they dump it into a a pool basically mm. under controlled circumstances so that you learn how to get out of a downed helicopter. It's actually one of the requirements of serving at sea. Oh, wow. If you're serving out of helicopters, you have to be able to know how to get out of them if one of them goes down. But in training, um, we were just in and out of like landing craft and fast boats and stuff like this. You do a lot of like um, shore assaults. And cliff assaults is another thing we do a lot of, because we were kind of mountain Arctic warfare trained. A lot of what we do is like ship to boat to shore and then cliff, you know, like a cliff insurgent. I'm already and, tired just hearing that. That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And but I mean, that's, that's kind of what you, that's what you're leading up to learn is how to get into places and how to survive once you're in there and stuff like this and, you know, how to move quietly and mm. stuff like this and. You know, how to make sure that your magazine isn't welded together with salt. As I found out one time after I cleaned my weapon religiously and we went on a, a mock assault. And then me, along with everyone else in my squad, uh, ended up with single shot weapons because we hadn't cleaned all the magazines out and all, all oh. the bolts were stuck together. <laughs> oh, man. And then the corrective punishment started. <laughs> well, that's the place to learn, right? Yeah. That's where you want to make to those learn mistakes. It there than in battle for sure, yeah. So, um, through your eight, you get through your eight months and then, you know, what, what happens toward the end of that? Is there like a staffing process or you just, they put you in some other further unit? You, you, you do it in phases, like the initial up to, I think it's the first four, it's been a long time, but like the first 14 weeks is just kind of basic what your regular army guy would get. Um, you know, basic training, how to, how to march or how to, you know, how to set up your bivy how to live in the bush, how to, you know, how to navigate, all of that stuff. Um, then we get into, like, the commando phase where they just make things a hell of a lot harder. There's a lot more, like, high obstacle course type work uh, done. A lot of rope climbing was a huge thing among the Marines is rope climbing with all your kid on. Mm. Um, the And it culminates in four commando tests, a nine-mile speed march, which is, like, nine miles and 90 minutes with... Uh, just your belt kit and a rifle, so like probably 35 pounds. Yeah. Um, done, like a lot of the Royal Marine stuff is done, once you're loaded, you walk up the hills, uh, but the flats and the downhills are ran. Mm. You, so, and, you, and you have to do everything in step too. It's, you, this isn't just a free range run. So there's the nine miler, and then there's the uh, Tarzan assault course, which is a bunch of just 
high wire obstacles, well off the ground, um, uh, where you you know slide down this long. We call it the death slide. You start off at about 50 or 60 feet off the ground and slide diagonally down a rope, and then you start running, climbing, <laughs> really? climbing these poles, and then sliding across, um, sliding across cables on your hands, and and then you know, hand, and your hands and arms and stuff like this, and jumping through cargo nets and climbing over cargo nets and all that stuff. So you get like you have to do that in under 10 minutes or 11 minutes. I can't remember exactly. Um, then there was the one I hated the most, which was the endurance course, which is three miles of water-filled tunnels that you get to crawl through and run in between, uh, and then a four-mile run back to camp, and then you have to put 10 shots on a uh, figure-eight target at a certain distance uh, <laughs> with no misses. That sounds, yeah, that sounds hard. It's not though. like when we practice shooting here and they're like, uh, do 15 jumping jacks and get your heart rate up. You're like, yeah. No, that that sounds like getting your heart yeah, rate up. This is like seventy two <laughs> minutes of hell, and then then you know a, a, <laughs> you know a shooting a shooting test immediately after this when you're breathing out your backside. So, and then day four is the thirty miler, which is just a long, horrible run with a lot of pack, a lot of weight on you. Yeah, how much time do you get to do that? That's eight hours. Eight, eight hours, hours for other ranks, seven hours for officers. We did ours in just over seven. They won't let us do it under seven because you're not supposed to beat the officers. <laughs> Why do they get a less time? Yeah, it's they just carry theoretically, less. Theoretically, no. Well, <laughs> probably uh, no. Theoretically, it's to uh, foster you know appreciation from the men, you know mm -hmm. that the officers managed to do this, but they did it in even less time than us. Like, look how good they are. <laughs> <laughs> so, what? Uh, where do you go from training? So you finish that up, and then you, we you put into like you get like a bunch of choices, and then they you know you, you put your first first seven choices down of what unit you want to go to. And then here's your first one to seven of which trade or specialist qualification you want to go to. And like, I really just wanted to get, go into a commando, court, a commando unit and just be a regular gravel-bellied bloody inf inf infantryman. I had no desire to go and learn any weird, wonderful, special tricks. I didn't want mm. to become a chef. I didn't want to become a signaler. Yeah. No desire. They did tell us if you uh, put chef anywhere other than seventh, that you would become a chef. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. nobody wanted it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I ended up going to 4-2 Commando as, a, as just a, uh, a general duties guy. Okay. So what do you do there? And, and when you show up, what, what does the showing up there look like? It's kind of like, well, it's regular military unit. Basically, you show up and you do some sort of training every day or... Some, some physical training in the morning and then you go to lectures and then you go, you know, or, or they take you off on exercises to somewhere else. You can go to Wales for a week and yeah. Um, we were deployed. We ended up going to the States first, actually, when I first got to 4-2 um, to take um, a couple of weeks of desert training in 29 Palms. And then we had a couple of weeks of mountain training also in California. Uh, in, I, I, was, I can, can never remember, it's Bridgeport or Bridgewater. It's their mountain Arctic warfare um, place in Northern California. And it's hilarious going from desert, desert, and within one day you're in bloody, you know, the, almost or, high yeah. Arctic <laughs> type, you know, walking up mountains. But, so, um, well, not high Arctic, but I mean like high altitude, sorry. 
what did you find? Uh, uh, did you have, I guess you had a lot of interactions with the U.S. Yeah. troops. So you find any major differences between them and, and how you guys did things or different leadership styles? The Americans are very funny in that, like, they, you get a medal for showing up, showing up first in the food queue. Like, they <laughs> yeah. get medals for everything. They also get ranks for everything. Like, they have, you know, for our five or six non-commissioned ranks, they've got bloody nine of them. Mm. You know, so there's guys with seven, eight sets of stripes, and you're like, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a sergeant of some sort, but it's, you know, what kind of sergeant are you? But, um, and they don't trust their very junior soldiers to, or at least it seemed to me anyway in the U.S. Marines, that they don't really trust their junior guys with complicated things. You will never see a private calling in mortar fire because they're not taught how to do it, mm. you know. And their radio, their radio procedure is friggin' abysmal. And it's, but at the lower levels, they tend to learn more things as they get ranks and get experience. It's whereas we're taught. You drink out of the fire hose when you're in commando training. They just shove everything into your, down your throat and you have to swallow it. That's one thing that I've heard from talking to a few other people was that uh, I guess like the Canadian military would be more similar to the British one in that you're almost taught to be a generalist. Yeah. But you're specialized in a lot of things. Maybe it's, generalist isn't the greatest term, but you're, you specialize in a number of things and you're always learning the the rank above you to do their yeah. job. There, whereas the the American military is very, uh, like you do this one thing and that's your job. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, because they're, I mean. They're so much bigger too though. I, I assume it's because of their numbers that they have to do the way they do. The other yeah. thing is a lot of the U.S. Marines I worked with were really, really, really lovely guys, like really nice people. But, they were not well educated. Like mm. they were people from, you know, like really buttfuck small towns mm. or, you know, super hick or super, you know, low income backgrounds. And you really got the, you know, the feeling that very few of them had actually finished high school and whatnot. It was, you know, they were really nice, but they were not right. Well, I wonder what their numbers, the kind of the, the geographic region that makes up the majority of their numbers because I've heard most of it is like your central Midwest. So it's like the poorer states, right? It's not people flocking from California or New York necessarily. So, um, yeah. But can, can you tell me, like, let's maybe get into some of your deployments that you went on. Because you said you've been in Ireland, you've been in Iraq. So you're there, you finish your training. Uh, where do you kind of go? Like, what's one of your first places that you head off to? Uh, from training, sorry? Yeah. Sorry, I missed the question. Oh, just from training. Like, where did, uh, where's one of the first places you kind of like went to? actually deployed? Yeah. Um, well, we ended up coming back from the U.S. where we'd done, like, Arctic stuff and mountain stuff. And then, or sorry, mountain stuff and desert stuff. Uh, no foreshadowing there. Um, then we went to Ireland for six months. So we ended up. Um, between you spend half your time in a guard tower mm. in the country, which has got like a huge CCTV camera on it, and you just do observations of the surrounding area um, from this tower. Uh, and then the other half is spent in a, in my case, was spent in a small village called Cross McGlen, um, 
in South Armagh, which is known in Northern Ireland as bandit country, because it's where a lot of the fairly senior IRA guys hung out and lived. So are you, what exactly are you there to do? Like, what's the mission? Kind of, without going too deeply into it, to like observe the local players to see who's who in the zoo and what they're doing and, so, re- and report on it. You're, it's kind of uh, part of an intelligence picture, essentially. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Like you're mainly there in an intelligence capacity. And just kind of, it's a low level. And we're there to support police, funnily enough. We, we did a lot. The police in Cross particularly don't go out without a military escort. Oh, really? All. And they don't go out in vehicles either. This is another thing the Brits learned in Ireland pretty quickly is you don't drive because cars blow up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so they stopped doing it. Uh, in that area, you could move by helicopter or on foot. So that's all we did. So tensions is obviously a huge conflict. It's still ongoing. Um, and you're there as like a security apparatus for the police escorts, helping them throughout the day, but also uh, a major intel component to that. Yeah, for sure, yeah. So, um, and just a presence as well. Like it's, you know, you're there to walk around the town and be seen by these players and whatnot so that they know they're, they know there's people there watching them. They're well aware of it. Did you have any kind of confrontations between? Uh, Nothing serious. It was winding down by the time we got there. It was, we had some minor issues. I had a guy try to run me over with a car. That was, uh, but it turned out he was a drunk driver. Um, <laughs> and I ended up spike belting him. But uh, it's one of the first kind of things where you're in a shoot or no shoot situation. You know, you I initially did have my rifle leveled at this guy's windshield. And I, you know, I was about to shoot the guy. And I'm like, and, it, and it, the political climate at the time, you know, that's one of those things that if, if this ends up not being justified, not a mile, not only am I in jail for a really long time, um, <laughs> but I've just started a fucking war back up again, single-handedly. So, you know, I did made the quick decision to jump into a ditch and throw a spike, grab the spike belt out of the top of my, my backpack and throw it across the street, managed to get the cord pulled back like it was one of the old stinger types, mm-hmm. and uh, managed to catch all four tires, so... Wow. Got a got a result there from a ditch. <laughs> so uh for most of your time there, what you know, does it do you have any other things that kind of come up or is it is it pretty peaceful time as it's winding down? It was pretty peaceful. We didn't we we only lost one guy that tour, and that's the first time there'd been a bloodless tour of that part of Northern Ireland since well, I there hadn't been one. Yeah since kind of like the early 70s. Okay. So it was, you know, it was, we kind of really were catching the tail end of it. Mm. We unfortunately lost one young lad to suicide, but not, but no, nothing to action. So what, uh, where do you go from Ireland? Uh, came back to Britain, then you get a bit, bit of leave, and you get six or seven weeks after a six month deployment. It's pretty good. So you come back really on, out of shape and, have to suffer all over again um yeah and then it's after that we were just gearing up for we were actually gearing up to go to the actually i'm going to back up here this is what happens Mm -hmm. when you shit was 20 some years ago it's uh, the memory doesn't serve well um 
I'm going to rewind actually to just before um, to before Ireland actually because September 11th was actually quite pivotal in this like that it was mm-hmm. 2001 and we were due to be flying out to the like I said we'd gone to the United States well that was on the eve of that day okay so the the uh, We got delayed basically leaving. And then when we did leave, it was a couple of, we got stuck at the airport for like a couple of days. And then we were the first flight out. And, and it really set the tone for like what you're doing because you're going for desert training and you're going for, you know, mountain training and, and all of a sudden this has happened and it's strongly thought to be, you know, al-Qaeda or something like this so you're you know you're strongly thinking oh I'm taking desert training and this just happened but I was already scheduled for desert training when this happened so mm-hmm. I mean that was that was one of those things where you start to really like oh we were this isn't just training for training's sake this is yeah you're you know, in it now yeah we're I, I think I know where we're going next after our scheduled Ireland de- uh, deployment and then sure enough uh, we come back from Ireland get our leave and then we're gearing up to go to Iraq. Is that, would you say that's like one of the first times that you thought, kind of thought that like, uh, you know, this is, now this is serious. Now this, like we're going, we're going to war essentially or some form of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was even just before all of that happened in early 2001, the Royal Marines had done a tour in Afghanistan where Afghanistan really wasn't a thing there. But they had sent one of the commanding units, I can't remember which, I think it was 40, had done a tour in, I think it was 2001 or 2000, when I was first getting in anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd actually been in the desert and whatnot, kind of previous to when it was in the public consciousness at that point. Um, but then, yeah, 2003 rolled around and we were involved, my unit, uh, was involved in the initial invasion, and so was 40 Commando. So, like two thirds of the Royal Marines were um, involved in some way, shape, or form in the invasion of Iraq. So, where the where you were, where the Brits, the kind of the spearhead, the main force there, or were you mixed in with Americans or other people? We were where we were in the south. We were the only ones they the way they kind of worked it is the brits took the south and the americans took the central okay uh, there was americans in Amkazar, which is a small city we landed up in after the initial invasion had us landing in um, the alpha peninsula which was like an oil gathering area in the south of iraq iraq's got an incredibly small coastline there and it's basically all just gas and oil plants for where all of the oil from the country gets gathered and then sent to pipeline Mm. and then out to sea and it's got a tiny little frontage so it's very very strategically important both to them and to anybody who wants the royal so that's the first thing we took of course Mm -hmm. um so yeah 4-2 commando took that 40 commando or sorry 40 commando took the actual um, tip of the peninsula, 4-2 commando, my unit, we did the northern cutoff. So we basically made sure nothing could get down to them. Uh, and we we went in, it was pretty quiet. Yeah. Where we were. Yeah, we uh, we ended up uh, firing some anti-tank weapons at a, at a scout car, basically. I, uh, 
somebody that's been sent to you know gather information. Yeah. Uh, didn't know we were there, and all of a sudden got lit up by a bunch of uh, Milan missiles. <sighs> so yeah, um, didn't hit him, by the way. <laughs> no. Yeah. So some of the anti-aircraft guys, we had a we had our own in-house um, anti-aircraft troop, and so their big joke was if it uh, if it flies, it dies; if it drives, it survives. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you land there. And you're kind of going into that. What's your mindset as you're, you know, you're, you're flying in and it's like, okay, in, in the next day or two, I'm, I'm going to be in this. So what are you kind of thinking around that time? I think you're, well, I was nervous, certainly. Yeah. Um, excited as well, I guess. You've, you've, you've spent all this time training for this and you're actually getting to go to a real war. Like it's, you know, a lot of people spend their entire military careers, sometimes quite long military careers, without ever getting to see any action. I mm-hmm. was just happy to know we wanted them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was quite excited. And, I mean, we got to see some pretty cool things. Like, we were flying, we were in an RAF Puma helicopter, and we were flying from Kuwait over the border into Iraq in the early hours of the morning. And there was a, we, as we passed the border, the borders lined up with a bunch of American tanks. Um, and there's a bunch of American servicemen standing on the tanks, saluting us as we went over, which was definitely one of the high points of my military career, just from the, you know, the kind of, wow, look at this. Yeah. It's, um, I think it would be interesting to see just like the camaraderie extends beyond borders, beyond the service, but you're all there for, you know, uh, you have a similar goal, but we're all in this together. And yeah, I, it's, uh, that would be quite a feeling to oh, see. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was, you know, it was, and you know what, they, the Americans, definitely the people we worked with the most. And I didn't ever see any acrimony, acrimony between the Americans and the Brits. Mm-hmm. Like never. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, not a single example of it, so. It's funny too because you think of the, you think of the history between Britain and America, and that's not <laughs> super long ago, you know, a couple hundred years, and then you are in the Middle East where, uh, you know, they've been going at it for thousands of years, uh, and you know, not trying to uh, make light of their situation, but you know, it you would think at some point somebody would kind of be like, okay, we've been doing this for how long now? Like maybe we're going to try and work together. I don't want to say get over it because it's not a, a right term, but you know, we're going to work together. But, uh, America has a war with Britain, which is still very relevant in a lot of people's minds nowadays. And, and yet they're just kind of moved on yeah. and, and, and are working together now. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting to see the, di- the dynamic between nations and um, uh, and all these regions, these are people that are are like their their families are from just across the border, but then now they're fighting the people across the border, and and it's uh, I don't know what a hard place to be in, especially well, in that part of the world. I mean, it's both both of the conflicts that I was in, like Ireland and Iraq both were characterized by the internal populations having their own divisions, you know, Ireland between the Protestants and Catholics. And then, you know, in Iraq at the time, it was between the Sunnis and the Shias. 
mm-hmm. you know, like the kind of the numerically small ruling class over the, you know, numerically large poor class. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting from that standpoint as well. Like, no, you know, you don't know whether you're dealing with a Sunni or a Shia, you don't know what yeah. the political things are. And even the combatants, like when we got further up north, we went from Amkazar, or sorry, from the Alfopan Inshallah to a small village called Amkazar. Um, and then from there, we ended up in Basra, which is like the largest Southern city. Um, and we, we were part of the battle of Basra. We were kind of the infantry support for, I think it was the Royal Irish Regiment, which are uh, heavy tanks. So um, our, our uh, Challenger two, these big, massive main battle tanks. And it was reputed to have been the biggest tank battle for the Brits since World War II. Oh, really? Yeah, there was, uh, and it was, they were fighting. I mean, they had 120 mil smoothbore cannons with, DU like depleted uranium rounds, which look like a bloody great lawn dart. Mm. Um, And the tanks they're fighting against are predominantly T-62s, which are Russian tanks designed in 1962. And they don't have the same arm. Their armaments like a 110 or a one or a hundred mil. And this is what Al-Qaeda is driving around. Yeah. And they're, yeah. And they're, they're mostly buried hull down because they know they're, not going to survive in a one-on-one battle. So they bury them, hold down, so only the turret is sticking out. But our guys just pick them off without ever taking a loss because the difference in range and accuracy mm-hmm. was massive. So mm-hmm. it was a very, very uneven battle, really. So when you're in there, uh, you're out on foot. Yeah. And what is it like being in the middle of that? It's it's interesting. You don't see it that much. We kind of go, you go in after the tank and we weren't on foot. Actually, we were in, uh, we were in, uh, BV 206s, our particular unit was because we didn't have enough real vehicles. So <laughs> what know? are those? They're like a double cabbed over snow vehicle. They were originally designed as an Arctic, um, snow wagon, basically. Oh, okay. And we ended up taking a bunch of them to the desert. They were absolute, absolute death drops, but... <laughs> the SOP on any sort of contact was to bail out of them and fight on foot. Mm-hmm. Like they were there to get you from point A to point B. You definitely didn't try fighting out of them. You, it's like they, driving a golf cart around. Not far off it. Yeah. <laughs> Just a really big one. Yeah. <laughs> so what's it like being in the middle of one of these battles? Uh, it's, it's chaotic, but again, you don't, we didn't see that much of it. Yeah. You don't, we kind of, you come in behind them, you sweep them behind them and you're basically there just to make sure that once they've taken the ground that you hold it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you don't actually sit there and listen to their cannons roaring and you know, you can, you kind of come around and sweep up behind. Mm-hmm. And then we got into Bowser itself and you know, and then you, you, you dig in and then we ended up pretty quickly after getting into there getting into the uh, into one of Saddam's palaces and that's where we ended up kind of holding up for the remainder of our time in Basra and then from there we just did daily patrols out of the used it as a base and then we just did daily patrols out so you were actually walking around inside the palace or one of them yeah so were you sitting on like a pile of gold did you get any pictures in there no well I got pictures certainly (laughs) it was a it was a picture of me that ended up in the Sunday Times many years after the conflict, uh, above a with four hooded prisoners and 
me holding a rifle behind them and uh, above a, an article that was talking about the mistreatment of prisoners. And they use your photo. <laughs> they use the photo of me, yeah. Did you get in any trouble for that? Like, no. anybody come after you and say, what are you doing? And you're like, no, no, no. Not at all. I was <laughs> back in Canada by the time that got released because of, of one of my mates that I'd served with actually sent me the, the whole paper <laughs> by by mail. <laughs> To my to my address in Canada, and there's the yeah, and for sure there's me, and I'm that's 100 me just sitting there with a rifle, and there's four hooded detainees. Wow, yeah. is your face visible then? Oh yeah, jeez, <laughs> yeah, would yeah. be quite the story. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go look this up. Yeah, I'll <laughs> but, see if I can find you the picture. But <laughs> well, what um, what do you kind of remember about like so you're in there and you're with all these uh, all these people. Uh, you know, are you, are you guys, do you get a lot of downtime? Like what's the the day to day when you're when now you're, taking this land? Once you're in, yeah, you're, you kind of rest up when you're not actually moving from point A to point B, you can rest up, clean weapons, administer yourself, eat, sleep, you know, do anything you need to do. It's you're, you're kind of treated like an adult in these situations, the, the, uh, you know, you're expected to know what to do. You're expected to know what needs to be done. You're expected to know when you've got your next briefing for your next patrol. You know, you, you're, you are treated like an adult as long as you act like one. <laughs> do you get, uh, I imagine you get to know all these guys pretty well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're sharing a lot of stories and stuff, right? Yeah. So you come out of that with, is there people you still talk to to this day? Not a ton. Probably because I moved countries again after that, you lose touch over time. I kept Facebook basically for that sole reason because it's one of the few easy mediums to talk to somebody back home with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a time change and all sorts of stuff. But uh, and, and unfortunately, my best friend in the Corps passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I kind of, well, I obviously lost touch with him. But yeah, over, over the years, I've... Kind of just lost touch with people. Yeah, yeah. What do you, you got any good memories from like when you were in there though? Oh yeah, loads. Yeah, <laughs> lots what, of stupid ones as well. But what do you guys kind of uh, when you wrap up in this push through and you do this battle that you were saying the tanks roll in, you take the palace. Um, do you get to go out and interact with the locals at all? Yeah. We did. Um, yeah. We did a few arrest ops on, like, once we identified who the Baathist leaders in the area were, we did arrest ops where we'd go out and kick doors in at three in the morning and then drag people out of their beds and stuff like this. And it was, uh, I mean, it was interesting because you practice that sort of thing a lot, but it's when you actually do it on the day, it's always so much more chaotic than it is in yeah in practice. We know that from just even police operations, you plan all day. Yeah. Uh, two seconds into it, it's it's going to hell. No plan ever <laughs> survives first contact with the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did those, uh, did those end up in any kind of skirmishes or anything, or most of those turned out all right? A couple of little, couple of physical, you know, scuffles, but no, we were, and we, we went in with such kind of overwhelming force mm-hmm. and whatnot that we we had a lot of people, even as we were going into like Amkazar, we had people surrender to us. We had like sol- soldiers surrender to us, but never in uniform. They shed their uniforms and got civvies on so that they wouldn't automatically, they, they perceived that they were just going to get shot on sight if they were seen with it. So we'd find, hmm. 
we did a, we started to find weapons caches in schools. So then we started targeting schools uh, because they were all closed down, no kids in them. Um, but schools over there all have kind of like live-in caretakers. So we'd find caretakers in the schools, which was normal. But it's not normal to have four military-aged males as the caretaker normally. It was a family, mm. you know, like with a, you know, a grandfather, you yeah. know, they, the parents, and then, you know, some, some little ones. That would be more of a normal caretaker fam- family. We were starting to find military-aged males. And then when we'd search the freezer, we'd find a bunch of military uniforms at the bottom of the freezer. And then we'd search the gymnasium. In one case, we're like kind of pushing on the ceiling tiles, and all of a sudden our, our, an RPG falls down. And in a mortar. Um, and, you know, you're like, and then, God, this is a well-hidden weapons cache. Mm. And these guys are soldiers. They're just, just pretending not to pretending, be. Pretending, yeah. So we, yeah, we, we did a lot of prisoner handling. We had a lot of people surrender to us, but we didn't get a lot of, we didn't get a lot of people shooting at us. Uh, some of 40 Commando got lit up a little bit in the south. Um, and another troop in 4-2 got some, small arms engagement, including one fairly funny one, uh, when we were taking over the Saddam's palace, because that was that was held. Um, somebody apparently, I don't know if this is urban legend or, or real, um, but apparently somebody fired an RPG at one of the Pinsgowers, which is like a little Land Rover type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it hit one of the Bergens, which is a backpack, and didn't go off. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that so is, just that stuck in his... That'd be back. a pucker moment. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. How do I get as far away from this thing oh, yeah, without dropping it on the ground? Oh, no. You get out of the vehicle and you get away from it. That's, <laughs> that's unexploded ordinance. You don't mess with that shit. You call in the engineers and somebody blows it up. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so was uh, after that, and because we don't have a ton of time left with you, but I wanted to get into some of the private work you did. Because you said you went, you left the, the military. And then you got into, you went back to Iraq for two years? Uh, yeah. So. Yes, 18 months, but it was, you did, you did two, two months in and then got one month out. So who do you go back there with? I'm always curious about this. Guys come out of the military and then they go off on like private contractor stuff. So what, um, like what kind of group are you working with and what type of work is it? I worked for a company called Diligence Middle East, which I think are now called Diligence LLC. Um, they still okay. exist. I think they're more into big corporate stuff now. But um, at the time, yeah, Diligence Middle East was at least this, the Iraq wing was run by an ex-SBS special boat service, mm-hmm. kind of like Britain's version of the Navy SEALs um, guy. And he predominantly, because they're out of commander units, um, predominantly hired ex-rail marines so we had one pair but we picked on him <laughs> there's always an outsider <laughs> what, uh, so what type of work is that um close protection essentially okay you so, you one-on-one protection for clients moving to and from meetings um in this case i first worked for a group called um, the international republican incident they're uh, an ngo non-government organization uh, with an obvious, as the name suggests, a kind of Republican take on uh, politics. Yeah, yeah. So they were there basically to school um, American-friendly politicians. So when we were there, close protection, we just made sure they got around Baghdad in vehicles um, as quietly and 
safely as we could possibly make it. Do you ever find, uh, like, do you find that job maybe even scarier because you don't have an army behind you? So if you get into <laughs> there's something, there's a real lack of air support. Yeah, like, <laughs> or even who's any support. Yeah, right? you're, who's, you're, who's going to back you up? You've got a QRF of like a quick reaction force of two other Land Rovers, you know, wow. and a lot of you know a lot of just small arms. I think the biggest thing we had out there was like belt-fed stuff, like an RPK. But so did most of that went kind of quietly we were lucky because the way the british special forces have operated for years um, and being run by one of them um, we did everything covertly mm -hmm. local cars we'd put sun sunshades in the back we had sf style body armor and carriers um, but we put like a local shirt over the top of it just to break the silhouette and the outline so when people look into a car all they see is just a big guy they don't really they, they don't see the body armor they don't see the weapon mm -hmm. you know you wear a baseball cap and sunglasses and kind of somewhat you know disguised that you're not local and yeah. then we always had a local driver in the front and a local close protection guy we so the front to look at that car from the front, you'd see blacked out windows in the back, which is normal in the Middle East. Yeah. And you'd see two local faces in the front. So for the most part, our vehicle moves went incredibly smoothly, except for accidents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the driving over there is abysmal. So you get into accidents pretty frequently. And then we had a couple of instances where people got out with pistols in their waistbands thinking they were going to intimidated us intimidate us into either paying them for the accident or at least ignore you know pretending the accident didn't happen and then they got the shock of their life when they see my big ugly mug in the back seat when they got to stick their head in the driver <laughs> and i've got an ak point at their head yeah it uh they tend to uh you know you say fuck off and off they fuck but well and i would think too uh you know for you it's like is this person hit did they hit me on purpose and, and that's now, the other thing yeah now it's like you know and it's getting Crazy. Well, I mean, as they're coming up to you, the guy, the back car always has the two guys basically sitting facing backwards the whole time. It's really uncomfortable. And they also have the heaviest weapons in this, mm -hmm. which in this case were just uh, German, East German AKs. Um, it was a while before we started to get better weapons. Like when we were first over there, we had a collection of AKs and, and MP5s, which are a beautiful weapon. They're just, it's a pistol round, though. It's not yeah. very useful for all, operating out of cars. Mm hmm. So, yeah, but yeah, it's the whole time they're coming up to you, you've got a gun on them. They can't see it, but you're, you're pointing at them and you're like, safety's off. And yeah, cause you don't, you don't know when that guy's going to reach for something. I mean, it's, it's the same stuff we deal with in policing to be fair. Yeah. You never know what you're getting into. Yeah. Uh, there's been a few times where I've poked ahead in the car or looked around and, oh, that person's God. sitting there with a rifle on their lap. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know it's happened to me. It's happened to several people I know. So yeah, not far off. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, is there, would you say kind of looking back, is there, has your reasons for being involved with like, now you're with the police, you did, uh, this time, even in the private sector, but it's all kind of in service. Would you say your reasons for doing this have changed at all? Um, I would say not really, actually. I get to the point where, like, I I tried to go back to school when I left the private security stuff and tried an engineering degree, failed it bloody miserably, and I hated my life so much at that point. Just, I really was not great in school, and it was mm -hmm. just trying it too late in life, like I do with everything. Um, so I went into provincial corrections for six years, 
and like after that because I you know I was just comfortable in a uniform and my brother worked in corrections and it just seemed an easy way of getting a job that I was going to be fairly good at. I really actually enjoyed it um, and then I just wanted to go the extra step of because you know it seems the next logical steps from corrections is policing because you're not just housing the criminals you're actually going out and catching them yeah but uh, my one regret on that is I wish I'd started a lot younger <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I imagine take a toll after some point. Cool. <laughs> Especially you're doing what thirty milers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my knees are my knee. I have the uh, uh, body of a forty nine, forty nine year old held up by the knees of a ninety nine year old. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and what would you kind of say for um, people looking to get into military or police service? Uh, would you kind of have any general advice, like maybe? do's or don'ts when it comes to what you're getting yourself into and and the reasons why like making sure that you are here for the right reasons i guess yeah 100 percent. i have two thoughts on that one do it younger mm -hmm. and do and two like do some preparation like it especially the royal marines was tough but anything like that if you the, the more physically fit and mentally fit you are when you go into it the better off you're going to fare when you get through the training and stuff like this, because you're going to get injuries. You're going to get, yeah. you're going to get knocked back. You're going to feel like a failure at some point. You're going to fuck something up, you know? Um, so those are things you can't always affect. The things you can affect are your fitness going in and stuff like that. Like I would say go in younger and go in prepared. Yeah. And what do you think about nowadays? Like there's the, the military here, I don't know about in Britain, but um, the military here and in the U.S., then you just look at all the police service, they're all having a hell of a time recruiting people. Um, any kind of thoughts around that? Like why why that might be the case? Lack of deployments always kills armies. Yeah. If you're not doing anything, nobody wants to go. It's mm -hmm. not, people don't join the military to sit in a barracks. People join the military to go do cool things overseas. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, like war is cool. I'm not trying to you yeah. know, glorify that. But you, you, yeah, I don't think anybody joins the military for those reasons. So when you're not going overseas and you're not doing anything, your recruiting is going to suffer. Well, this is one thing that I thought about when it comes to policing is are we trying to attract the right people? And sort of on that deployment side of things where um, like for police, it's not to say we're going out and we have to uh, you know, be kind of shit starters and, and be confrontational with people or anything. But I think a lot of the recruiting and, and the strategies behind it, like from what we see now, everything is just a smiling face on a poster, wear your nice tie and you're, you're all squared away and you know, like you look pretty and that's great. But people that want to do this type of work uh, will be attracted by the, the action. And maybe, maybe we're putting, we're trying to attract the wrong people and doing things that are, are off putting to the ones that would be most likely to be motivated to do this type of work. And what I find funny is like, so uh, a lot of the conversations I've had with people on this podcast is, you know, like policing's changing. Maybe some of the, some of the functions are, but end of the day, you know, 
patrol work is the bread and butter of this. That won't change. You still need people to go be adult babysitters. <laughs> and you need to attract people that are motivated, that like doing physical work, that want to be out there in the field, um, and that have some fortitude, that have some gusto. Like Otherwise, you, you know, we're just going to slowly kind of die off and we can't be a bunch of people sitting inside, not on this job, not in the military. So kind of my thoughts around that. But um, so uh, in the end, though, service kind of where you've been for most of your career, it's been a good time. It has. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't change. I mean, I'd change the order I did things in certainly. And I would have got into things younger had I, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would do it. I would do it again. I probably would have skipped the oil field working yeah. um, and gone into the Marines, you know, as a, a 17 or 18 year old or gone and got a degree and then gone in as a 23 year old officer, you know? So money and, isn't everything. Oh, it's no. the, about the experiences, the camaraderie, being with uh, some good people, making some good memories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I've, I've, I've progressively, other than maybe the private security, which actually paid pretty well, but other than that one blip, I think as I get older, I get into jobs that pay less and less as I get older. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, makes sense. Uh, so that kind of comes to the end of our time, but uh, is there anything else that you think uh, we didn't cover that you'd like to cover or maybe we missed something? No, I think we're pretty good. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for the uh, time today. So Thanks very much for having me.